This is the Business Storytelling Show with Christoph Trapp. Name a top 20 storytelling podcast and a top 5% podcast globally. Christoph chats with thought leaders and experts to share tips and tricks that can help you tell your company's stories better to drive business results. Available wherever you listen to podcasts, live streamed on major social media channels, and part of the DB&A television network, available on most U.S. television sets and streaming on Roku and Amazon Fire. Here's Christoph with today's episode. Let's go. Let's go business storytellers. Hey, how's everyone doing? Today we want to talk about the imposter syndrome. Chris Kelso calls that the imposter in his book, Overcoming the Imposter. You can get that on Amazon and I assume everywhere else where there where books are available, but that's where uh, I have the link to in the show notes, in the comments below. Uh, we are live streaming to a number of channels. So if you have any comments, questions, feel free to chime in during the show and we try to answer them for the benefit of the TV audience. We'll throw them up on the screen, of course, if there are any questions. So the imposter syndrome is always interesting because you're you're questioning yourself, right? Should I do this? Am I qualified to do this? Am I qualified to be a podcast host? Absolutely not. I don't even wear TV makeup, but I'm still doing it. So you always feel like that, right? So we want to find out, how do we overcome the imposter syndrome? How do we tell better company stories? And how do we get over? that hurdle. So let's get Chris Kelso on the show here and find out. Chris, welcome to the show. Yes. Welcome. Good to see you, Chris. So glad to be here. Good to see you as well. So tell me, first of all, to get us started, started, tell me, how did you even think about this? Why is this an important topic to you? And, and I mean, you, you wrote the book. Now there's an audio version that's going to be available. So you're certainly fully invested in that yes. topic. Oh man, that we could spend the entire show on that question alone, but I'll try to keep it concise. Imposter syndrome is a thing that I didn't really know or understand until just a few years ago, but I've experienced it throughout much of my career as an entrepreneur. So I've founded two different companies that I've run and I've been an executive. I've been a consultant to Fortune 50 companies and all the while I was doing these things and managing these huge projects and uh, accomplishing great things, advising investors and doing mergers and acquisitions, all kinds of things. And and I often felt like I wasn't qualified, just like you said on the front. I'm, you're not qualified to to lead this, to host this podcast or to do this show or to run this company or to be called the expert in the thing that you're being called an expert as. And when I first learned about imposter syndrome, it was like a huge weight lifted off my shoulder just to know that that's a thing, that that, that self-doubt, that that feeling of ah, maybe I'm not quite what everybody thinks that I am, that that's a really common phenomenon that a lot of people experience it. And in fact, that it is more prevalent among high achievers. So the more ambitious and driven you are, the more likely you are to find yourself in situations where you feel like you're in over your head. And so I learned about this, this thing, this, this phenomenon, and I started studying it. And then I started talking about it and I started talking about it with clients of mine. Uh, I coach a lot of entrepreneurs and I work with lots of business owners. And I started talking to some of my colleagues and people that I knew. And the response that I was getting told me that this was a really widespread and commonly felt problem, but that not many people were really opening up 
and discussing it. And that like me, many of them thought they were the only ones. They thought that they were the only ones that felt that way. And so as I talked about it more and more, I realized there needed to be more education. There needed to be more discussion of this topic. And I, I'm a person who reads a lot of books and I recommend a lot of books, uh, especially to my clients. So if you have a financial struggle you're working through, I've got a good small business finance book. If you're wrestling with marketing strategy, well, here's a great book on marketing strategy. And if you need leadership or communication, I'm recommending books all the time. But I couldn't find a book written about imposter syndrome that really spoke to my tribe, to my community, entrepreneurs, innovators, people that are pushing the boundaries that are stretching themselves. And so eventually it just became a compulsion that this book needed to exist and it didn't. And so I felt like I had to write it. And that's, that's what I did in 2020. I mean, that's a fantastic way of fantastic reason to figure out whether or not you should write a book, right? If it doesn't exist, yes. just get it out there. Um, so when when Seth Godin was on the show and, and his book came out, I remember the name even of the book, but something about shipping, you know, ship your creativity. And he talked about yeah. how sometimes, you know, the, the need to be perfect um, gets us to not ship something, right? And, yes. and nothing yes. I ever do is perfect because I'm trying new things. You know, I'm trying YouTube shorts. I'm trying web stories. Mm-hmm. I'm There's always something that I don't know yet because, well, guess what? It's the first time I'm trying it, right? Yeah. And it's never perfect. Never is. Yeah. Um, just like many shows aren't perfect. So how much of the imposter syndrome, like, is it actually a, a problem or are people using it as an excuse not to ship? Mm. You know what? It's both. So on one okay. hand, people will use it as an excuse. And, and sometimes people will do what I call productive procrastination, which, which means they're doing work. They're, they're busy but they're doing work that doesn't matter in order to avoid something really important, but also really scary. So it could be fine tuning the intro to your show when what you need to be doing is releasing the show and getting it out in front of viewers and listeners and getting feedback from them. But because you're, you may have a fear about the potential rejection or the potential failure uh, perceived failure of that show, you keep tweaking it. You keep working on it. You keep, oh, I got to get the website just right. Or I, you know, I have to have so many episodes in the can before I can release it. And so you just keep working at it without actually doing the thing that pushes you forward, which is hitting that publish button or shipping it, as Seth Godin would say. The other part of this phenomenon that plays in though, where it really becomes a problem is when you're dealing with perfectionism. And I am a professed perfectionist, a recovering perfectionist, because when I was young, especially, I didn't ever want to do anything unless I could do it absolutely perfectly, be the best. I didn't want to enter a contest that I wasn't sure I could win. Uh, Second place just wasn't good enough for me. And psychologists define perfectionism in two different ways. There is a healthy perfectionism where you have really high standards, but you're able to still uh, you're able to still get some gratification and satisfaction from falling short of those standards. Like 80% is good and you can enjoy the value of 80, 85, 90%. But then there's an unhealthy perfectionism. They call it neurotic perfectionism. And that is where you have ultra high standards, maybe even unachievable standards, and nothing short of those standards will be satisfying. And you feel like a failure if you get a 99 out of 100. 
And that, that unhealthy perfectionism, that neurotic perfectionism, it correlates highly with imposter syndrome. People who struggle with imposter syndrome and feeling like a fraud also often have that neurotic, unhealthy perfectionism. And so that's something we have to recognize and fight against and train ourselves, retrain ourselves to see the value and actually appreciate and get gratification from doing something at 85%, 90%, almost getting there. Third place is still a great accomplishment, even if it's not a win. It's very interesting. And, you know, when we talk about perfectionism, uh, I'll talk about the the intro to this podcast. And when you really look very carefully, it's completely outdated. It has the wrong TV mm. logo on some of the previous clips because they're from when they had a different logo. Uh, the numbers we mentioned are no longer correct, right? Because they have improved. Uh, yeah. But I'm going to update it. And now I don't know if you guys noticed this on the video stream. Now I add at the end which episode it is. So I have to remember to do that for every episode. And I thought that was a nice touch. I, I saw that on Only Murderers in the Building on Hulu. Um, yeah. And they have that. So that's kind of where I stole the idea. It looks different. Uh, but that's kind of where I got the idea. Episode 525. Um, now I have to remember to have the episodes run in the right order. Um, that's right. But nobody... <laughs> No, right. But now, Chris, nobody has ever said to me, your DBTV logo on the intro is outdated. Nobody right. has ever said that. Or yeah. nobody's ever said, well, you used to be in the top 5%. Now you're in the top 2.5%. Nobody's ever said that ever. Mm -hmm. So some of those things, I think they matter to us, right? And we should yeah. fix them at some point. But the yeah. audience really cares about the content. What does it add to yes. their experience? What does it go, What does it do there? Um, so how do we overcome this, though? So if I have these high standards and I can't meet them unless I hit 100 out of 100, which is impossible in my opinion, but mm. how do I even make steps, even if they're baby steps, in the right direction? Yeah, I think one of the biggest mental shifts you can make that will help you overcome imposter syndrome and perfectionism, for that matter, is reframing how you think about success and failure. And in particular, there's one shift that is really important, and that is to see failure as a learning process. See, sometimes we view failure and success as two ends of the spectrum, as opposites. There's either failure or there's success. And if I haven't succeeded fully that 100%, then I've failed. And in fact, they're not opposites. Failure is part of the process of success. Because failure is a great teacher. We learn a lot from failure. And many successes are built on the lessons learned from failures. And I can give you great examples. I have a whole section in the book of examples of very successful people, famous people, people you would know, and all the failures that they experienced on the way to their successes. One, one great example is a baseball player named Babe Ruth. Most people, even if you're not baseball fans, have heard of Babe Ruth. He's considered to be the greatest baseball player of all time. He was called the Sultan of Swat for his home run hitting ability. And he held so many records. Many records still stand today, years after he's dead. He holds a lot of Major League Baseball records. But he also had a nickname, the King of Strikeouts. And he held a Major League record. His career total of 1,330 strikeouts was a Major League record for 30 years until it was eventually beaten by not some terrible player by another guy named Mickey Mantle. Another great baseball player took 
the strikeout record from Babe Ruth. And so the lesson there is that those strikeouts were part of the learning process because when a ball player strikes out, he's learning the pitcher's tells. He's learning the tendencies. He's watching and paying attention to the patterns so that he can face that pitcher and, and hit against him the next time. And so every time Babe Ruth got up to bat, number one, he was taking big risks and publicly risking failure to try to take those big swings. But he also was learning from every one of those failures when he did strike out, when he didn't get on base, when he didn't have the success he wanted. And those failures led to the big successes and the records that he had. So that's a mental shift that we've got to have to, to start to rethink this idea that failure is not the opposite of success. It's part of the process. Well, we're talking about some of the greatest Yankees of all time here. I thought I'd get up and get a Yankees hat on. Go Yankees. Um, Very nice. Finally starting to win again, even though they lost last night after 13 innings. If you're watching on the live stream against Seattle, um, hopefully nobody's watching on this kind of time delay on your DVR. But so when you say a strikeout... I just spoiled it, right? Because I actually <laughs> did watch it bright and early this morning. Um, nice. But, you know, because I can't stay up that late. It's uh, I'm on Central Time and Western West Coast Time. It's like 9 p.m. my time when they start. But anyways, let's not digress into um, baseball. Um, so when you say a, a, um, a strikeout is a failure, I mean, is a strikeout really a failure? Is what's a failure? Like when I say that's a failure, um, is me publishing a YouTube short and the trending sound turns off halfway or three-fourths of the way off, turns off, is that a failure or it's just like the learning experience? Like it's not yeah. anything. It's just like it's just what happened. We'll learn more next time. Um, how do we even define failures? And for the the uh, light, um, the, the people with a, uh, what do you call it? Not a thick skin, whatever the, the opposite yeah. is. Uh, what do we call it to make it less threatening, I guess? I mean, f- maybe it's just it's a learning experience or it's like, yeah, yeah, happens, move forward. Like, how do you kind of think about that to make that easier? That's exactly right. I mean, if you're a perfectionist, if you have that neurotic perfectionism, then anything short of perfection is a f- is a failure is the way you think of it. But we've got to rethink that. And you hit the nail on the head of it's a learning experience. So when I attempt something new, when I take a risk, when I experiment or try something, whether it's in business or my personal life, whatever it is, I now think about two possible outcomes. I'm either going to succeed or I'm going to learn. Those are the only two options. And as long as I succeed or I learn, I haven't really failed. Maybe I didn't accomplish what I set out to. I didn't have that success of the event, sort of like a strikeout at bat okay, I struck out, I didn't get on base, I didn't score, but I learned something that's going to lead to the next on base, to the next home run. And so when you reframe failure as learning, then suddenly the fear of failure, which is a big part of imposter syndrome, it's this fear that someone's going to see me fail and that's going to expose me for not being legitimate, for being a fraud. Uh, That fear of failure starts to melt away when you realize that failure is learning and that most people who succeeded did it by multiple failures and learnings along the way. You know, it's interesting to me too, and then I'll get off the whole baseball analogy here. But uh, when, when we say a strikeout, not every strikeout is created equal, right? I mean, my, my daughters yes. play competitive softball and, 
uh, one of them, you know, is they she still plays coaches pitch eight U, but the other one is now sixteen U, and she's had uh, at bats with a strikeout that ended in a strikeout, but they were like fifteen pitches, and if you have a fifteen yeah. pitch at bat, that might be a strikeout. But you also just took a lot out of that pitcher because you took 15 pitches out of her uh, her energy reserves, right? Even though you didn't get on base. So we got to think about that too. Let's shift a little bit here and talk about culture. Now, when you talk mm. about, I, I, you know, I mean, I've grown up in some cultures where you have to be perfect or close to perfect. And, and you know, there's no, and you get, they make you feel bad for lack of a better term. Yeah. If it's yeah. not perfect. Uh, and now, you know, now the culture at Vox Pami, you know, is very open. You know, it's like, you know, we're trying to move forward. We're trying to be good teammates. Um, you make a misstep. You don't necessarily uh, feel bad about it. You just learn from it. Um, so, you know, how do you um, move? Uh, how do you install that kind of culture? And how important is that? Before you answer that, we do have a couple people here. Thomas Chappell, good to see you again. Uh, in Mexico and listening. Appreciate that. Um, always good to see people from all over the place. Uh, Eileen Lascar, failure is only final if one does not harness the lessons. Mm, 100%. Yes. Eileen is a, is a great coach and CEO in Kenya. And, uh, and she has been uh, a big supporter of my work. And we've done some work together with coaches over there. In fact, we just got off a call with a group of of, uh, of people working through this process and having some of these very discussions. And so to, to talk about your point of culture, it is really, really critical. And leaders play such a role in setting the tone and the culture for their organization. And one big difference between a, a group and a team that's going to be very productive and very effective in their work and one that's going to get mired and stuck and waste a lot of resources a big difference is how vulnerable they are willing to be and how much they're willing to acknowledge a weakness, a shortcoming, a mistake, a learning opportunity, a, uh, a something that they need to know that they don't know, that they feel like they have to uh, get some education or some training or get some help with something. And the reason is because in a culture where the uh, the standard is perfection and everybody's expected to have it all together and know all the answers. And especially if a leader is setting the tone of mis any mistake or any failure or any shortcoming is looked down upon is going to be shamed. What's going to happen is your people are going to spend a lot of cycles, a lot of energy on managing their image. They're going to be trying to cover up for their flaws. They're going to be working around the struggles that they have or the things that they just don't know. They're going to reinvent different ways of doing things to work around a simple lack of knowledge when what they really need to do is just ask the hard question or just have a conversation with somebody and admit that something's missing, that there's a gap. And so all that management of image, all that protection and that uh, sort of jockeying for position and making sure that they look like they have it all together, that wastes a lot of energy. It wastes a lot of effort. And when you have a bunch of people who are spending a lot of time all pretending and trying to appear like they have it all together with one another, their actual effectiveness and the work that they get done is going to be minimized. It's going to be really, really reduced by all the extra effort that's being put into that. But 
On the other hand, when you create a culture where vulnerability is the norm, where people can feel very comfortable saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm in over my head here and I don't, I'm not sure that I know what I'm doing or I've got some good ideas, but I really need some help and I need some other people to weigh in. You can get things done a lot more quickly because mm -hmm. there's no wasted effort on that image management. It's all going to productive work as a team. I do like this comment from one of our viewers on LinkedIn. He or she is listed as a LinkedIn user because of their privacy settings. So Restream carries that over. Uh, don't be afraid to try something new. You will either succeed or learn. That's a good yes. way to think about that too. Um, in a couple of minutes here, um, Chris, tell me, talk about vulnerability a little bit more. And I'm thinking about, I don't have any problems with being vulnerable. And I think I've worked with leaders and even uh, myself in leadership roles, you know, I've been vulnerable, but but there's a fine line to figuring out when you want to do that and when somebody mm. will hold it against you, right? Because once you're vulnerable, as the word suggests, some yeah. jerk face can also hold that against you. So how yes. do you figure out when is the right time to, to be vulnerable and when does it help the team? And I mean, you certainly have to yeah. establish some relationship before you do that, I guess. There, there, there's absolutely risk involved, but I, I do want to dispel one sort of myth that people or a trap that people fall into related to vulnerability. And that is that they think that trust has to be established before you can be vulnerable. They think that, that trust precedes vulnerability and it's the other way around. The way you build trust is by being vulnerable. So vulnerability precedes trust, all right? And that's really important um, because if you wait for trust to be established, it's going to be a slow, difficult process to get there. But by actually opening up and being more vulnerable, you can create trust faster. Now, as you pointed out, Christoph, that's that's risky. You're You're putting yourself out there and you're giving someone potential ammunition to use against you if they want to. But here's what I've discovered. And this is this has been a game changer for me. When I go into a new environment, a new organization, a new uh, community, perhaps, I'm either joining an organization or I'm at a conference for the first time or I'm being introduced to a new company. What I've learned is that if I will lead with vulnerability, if I'll just put myself out there and admit a weakness, a shortcoming, a fear, an insecurity, just talk about where I'm really at and what I'm struggling with, one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to get some of that pushback. I'm going to get people be defensive or, or putting their mask on or, you know, being embarrassed by it, or even someone who's going to try to weaponize that against me, or people are going to really appreciate it and they're going to open up. All right. Often when I'm vulnerable, I have people say, Oh, I'm so glad you said that because I felt that way too. And I thought I was the only one. And, and man, oh, or they say, you know what? That's not my issue, but I'm struggling over here. And if you'll help me with this, I'll help you with that. And, and let's help each other. And we can lean on one another. And people start to open up when you are vulnerable because they know that they can feel safe with you. The, the flip side is when they don't do that, I know that this is a community that is not going to serve me well. I know that this, I know very quickly that this is a place that is not safe or where there's armor. Now that, does, that doesn't mean that I can't interact or can't work with those people, but I realize really quickly where I need to put my boundaries and how careful I need to be. 
But when people open up, when I'm vulnerable and they lean into it, then I know I'm in a safe place. So the lesson here is I've actually learned to use vulnerability as a test. And, and if, if people lean into it and they appreciate it, then I know that I can build trust quickly and be effective quickly with that group of people. On the other hand, if they get defensive and they put that armor on, and especially if they try to act like they're going to weaponize that against me, well, then I just, I know who I'm dealing with. And so in either way, I'm learning about them really quickly. It does involve some risk, but the benefits, in my opinion, have far outweighed the risks when I've done that over and over again. The hardest part certainly is when people weaponize it and you can't figure out that they are, right? So it's always important to kind yeah. of um, figure that out. But but it seems like the, the kind of companies where, where people do that, stuff gets back to everybody anyway, so, um, yeah. because nobody can keep their mouth shut about anything. Um, Chris, really quickly, the last 40 seconds here or so, or 30 seconds, tell us about yourself. How do people, do you take clients? What do you do? I mean, you wrote this great book, but how else can people work with you if, if they can? Yeah, I work, I work with clients in three ways. Uh, one-on-one coaching. I'm a certified, uh, leadership coach with the international coaching federation. Uh, secondly, I work with teams. So I have a handful of clients that I run their leadership quarterly meetings, doing goal setting, problem solving, communication, team health, and team dynamics. And then I'm also a a public speaker. So I speak to large audiences. uh, And I love to teach and help large groups to change their mindset around some of these things that we've been talking about. Fantastic. Great insights. Congratulations on the book. And of course, now getting the audio version out there. I know there's a lot of interest in that kind of content as well. Really appreciate you making the time. Thank you, Christoph. It's been really fun. Great conversation. I've enjoyed it. That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please rate and review our show on your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to share this episode with your networks. We appreciate you. Until next time, let the best stories win. Stories win.